Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. Folklore.org by Andy Hertzfeld. Mea Culpa, 2004. Almost everyone involved with the original Macintosh design is proud of their work, both individually and collectively. But that doesn't mean we aren't also embarrassed about some of our mistakes. It's worthwhile to consider, if not apologize for, the worst decisions that I was personally responsible for and other major faults in the system software and the product as a whole. The worst blunder that I perpetrated had to do with the memory manager. Bud Tribble began by adopting the Lisa Intra-Segment Memory Manager before we added a few features. One was a locked attribute you could assign to relocatable memory blocks, temporarily preventing them from being moved. Another enhancement was a purgeable attribute, a signal to the memory manager that it could release a block when necessary as memory filled up. The features themselves weren't a problem. The big mistake was where I chose to place the bits that controlled these attributes. I decided to place them in the high-order bits of the master pointer, a pointer to the current address of a memory block, because they weren't being used for anything else. The Motorola 68000 only had a 24-bit address bus, so the remaining eight high-order bits of a 32-bit address were unused. The high bit of a word is the most efficient one to test, which is another reason I thought it was efficient to place the flags there. Of course, it was foolish to count on unused address bits to stay that way for very long, and it became a problem when the Macintosh transitioned to the 68020 in 1987. The 020 used a 32-bit address bus, so the memory manager could no longer get away with using the high-order master pointer bits for flags. It wasn't that hard for Jerome Coonan to convert the memory manager to keep the flags in the block header instead of the master pointer. That's where they should have been in the first place. However, the practice of manipulating these bits directly had crept into third-party applications, even though it wasn't supposed to, and it took another couple of years to identify and eradicate all the transgressions and for most software to be made 32-bit clean. I paid a more direct price for my second worst mistake using fixed low-memory addresses for toolbox global variables. In my defense, the Apple II kept important system globals in low memory as well, and the 68000 included a special short addressing mode that made accessing the first 32K of memory more efficient. This made it attractive to use low memory for various globals. While that may have been acceptable for system globals, it was clearly a mistake for the toolbox. It precluded us from running more than one application at a time, unmodified, since each application required its own copy of the toolbox globals. Fortunately, that didn't matter at first, because with 128K of RAM, we barely had enough memory to run a single application at a time anyhow. But when the 512K Macintosh arrived in September 1984, it started to become an issue. In October, after I left Apple to work on my own, I realized you could solve the problem by swapping all of the application-dependent low-memory locations when you switched between applications, that is, when you performed a context switch. Armed with that idea, I wrote the core of the Mac's first multitasking environment, called Switcher, in just a few days. I kept multiple programs resident in memory using the low-memory swapping technique and switched between them with a nifty scrolling effect. 
Using low memory ended up making context switching a few milliseconds slower than it should have been and made it harder to eventually use a memory management unit, but it didn't turn out to be as devastating as I had once thought. On the hardware front, we wanted the Macintosh to have a relatively simple architecture so we could perform well with limited resources. But perhaps we went a little bit too far. We decided we could live without a memory management unit, which was the right decision at the time because the extra hardware required was quite expensive. But we also eliminated the distinction between user and system code by running everything in the 68000's supervisor mode. This empowered applications and simplified the software architecture, but it was a poor choice in the long run. It became increasingly difficult to control the software base as the system evolved. Even Bill Atkinson made an occasional error. His worst mistake was using signed 16-bit integers for various quick-draw data structures like regions and pictures. This limited the maximum size of a region or picture to 32 kilobytes. Bruce Horn's resource manager suffered a similar problem using 16-bit offsets, which limited the size of resource files. The biggest problem with the Macintosh hardware was pretty obvious. Expandability. But the problem wasn't really technical so much as philosophical. Making every Macintosh identical eliminated the inevitable complexity associated with expandability, both for users and developers. It was a valid point of view, even somewhat courageous, but not very practical. Things were still changing too quickly in the computer industry for the idea to work well. Burl tried to sneak some expandability into the design with his diagnostic port, but was only partially successful. It was also philosophical in the sense that any system is, quote, open if you have a soldering iron, a debugger, and a little determination. See the Stephen Levy article, An Open and Shut Case, MFR number 6, November 2018. Check the show notes. Limited expansion exacerbates other flaws in the design, since there aren't any simple options for yourself or third parties to correct them easily. Inadequate hard disk support in the first Macintosh was a big mistake. Our first file system, suggested to us by Bill Gates in July 1981, used a simple data structure that didn't scale well to large drives. Neither the first Macintosh filing system, MFS, nor PCDOS 1.0's FAT12 supported subdirectories. The finder may have made it look like you had folders in MFS, but these fake folders didn't even show in open and save dialogues. It was just smoke and mirrors. FAT12 could hold a theoretical maximum of just under 4,096 files. MFS, if you listen to Wikipedia, had the same limitation, but we know better than to do that. To quote DogCow at MacGUI.com, in MFS, the length of the file directory is set at volume initialization time and therefore governs how many files in total may be stored on the volume. A 400k disk is initialized with 12 directory blocks. If all file names were one character long, each directory block could store nine file entries. Multiplied by 12 directory blocks, you get 108 file entries in total. But this is merely a theoretical maximum, an extreme example. More practically, the average file name length is probably closer to 20 characters, which means seven entries per directory block, giving a maximum of 84 entries in total and we didn't have a way to get bits in and out of the box at the rates that a hard disk required. 
In our defense, it was difficult to envision adding a hard disk to the Macintosh because it was one of the last differentiators from the Lisa, which was more than three times as expensive. The absence of easy expandability made it more difficult for third parties to jump into the breach, although some did anyway. Some early Mac hard disk vendors attached boards directly to the CPU for high-speed communication. Others, like Tecmar's Mac Drive, went through the serial port. You heard that correctly. Let's take a fast hard disk and run it at dial-up modem speeds. On Usenet in 1984, Dan Winkler reported that just moving a file into a folder took 10 seconds. Quote, I made the mistake of choosing clean up from the special menu earlier today. I waited more than half an hour for it and then left. I came back seven hours later and it had finally finished. But then when I tried to move some files into a folder, it added insult to injury and crashed. The thing is rebooting now and I'll check back tomorrow to see if it's up. From a broader perspective, I think many of our mistakes came from not understanding our goal. We thought we were reincarnating the Apple II for the 1980s, but we were actually creating the first in a long line of compatible computers that would persist for decades, although the latter wouldn't have happened if we didn't succeed at the former. Perhaps our design would have given the future more priority over the present if we had understood how long it would last. Comment on Folklore.org from David Caceres from 2004. Around the time we were working on making all of our code 32-bit clean for the 68020, there was a folktale going around about a conversation between John McCarthy, the Lisp guy, and Andy. McCarthy, there is no problem in computer science that can't be solved by a few more levels of indirection. Hertzfeld, or a few more low-memory globals. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. You can find more stories or join the very quiet Discord server for this podcast at www.macfolkloreradio.com.